And let's stand for the reading of God's word. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, will you remind us today that these are your words to your people. And therefore they are words of love. So thank you that you've preserved them for us, Lord. We pray that you'd, you would give us a, an understanding in our minds and hearts desiring to follow you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So a, a little bit of context here in terms of what's being spoken to uh, this church in Corinth. He, he, he says this... Uh, this major uh, doctrine in terms of separating from unbelief. And yet, a few sentences earlier, he had said, you are ambassadors for Christ. Ambassadors to whom? Well, it's to our world, but not just our world in general, but to unbelieving people. And so how, how do these fit together? It's not a contradiction. It may seem like it on the surface. Paul didn't forget what he had just said. And he's about to explain what it means to separate and to what degree we are to separate. So let's, uh, let's try to figure this out. Um, I will state right up front 
that followers of Christ are called to separation. But there's been all kinds of interpretation of that down through the centuries and even in our day. So I want to start by talking about what biblical separation is not. And I'm going to give you some broad categories. Uh, There's lots of application to it. Uh, But first of all, biblical separation is not merely separation by proximity. Uh, Let me explain this. That's been a a mistake that has been made historically. Uh, The idea that it's just talking about physically being separate from unbelievers. And isn't it ironic that here in, in the day of a quarantine, we're, we're talking about uh, separation and, and so on, uh, because we're thinking about it all the time in one way or another, aren't we? And here he uh, uh, emphasizes that you aren't to be yoked together in a partnership and so on. We'll talk about that in a moment. But some have interpreted that as just a a pulling away of, uh, from unbelief. Uh, if you go way back, like 250 A.D., uh, there was a, a, a man named Anthony. He sold everything, gave it to the poor. He went to a cave where he felt that he could uh, live a life of separation and meditation and that that would fulfill what uh, the scripture's speaking of in terms of separation. Unfortunately, uh, he was uh, so attractive in his beliefs and in, in his conviction that he got followers, and so they all came too, and, and that kind of uh, defeated at least his, his purpose. Uh, there have been various kinds of uh, um, forms of monasticism. Uh, think monastery, monasticism down through uh, the centuries, and not, not even all of those made a lot of sense. There was uh, uh, St. Simeon Stylites. Uh, when I first saw Stylites, I thought, now, wasn't that a group back in the 70s? But those were the stylistics. I actually had to look that up. But what, what a stylite is, is uh, somebody who lives up on a pole. He had tried other things, couldn't get away from people, and uh, this was, uh, became a a thing in ancient and medieval Syria and Turkey and Greece. Uh, He lived up on a pole for 30 years, some 60 feet up. Uh, He was pursuing holiness by separating himself in that way. We've had... Uh, things in in our country where groups have tried to do that. Connie and I have uh, uh, visited a a Shaker community. It's a former Shaker community because there aren't Shakers anymore. Uh, You know of them because of their furniture. They made this beautiful but very simple furniture. Uh, But some of their communities have been preserved. The reason there aren't shakers anymore is because uh, uh, they would pull away from the world. They would live only among themselves, and they felt like that led to holiness. 
but one of their tenants, because they thought that uh, Jesus was coming back in their lifetime, was that they uh, became celibate. And so that's actually a guarantee that your community is going to die out. And that's what, that's what actually happened uh, with them. So go, go forward to closer to our day and, and in our day. There are churches that would teach that this separation is actually separating from unbelievers and places unbelievers go. You get the application there. You know the kinds of, of things that, uh, that they would say. But again, how does that fit with being an ambassador? Well, a, a second thing this separation is not is it's not just removal from sight. Uh, I had an uh, acquaintance uh, who was a staff person uh, in a church, not in our denomination, but uh, their church, one of the rules of the church was that, that you were not allowed to go to movies. Now, I know for some of you, that's like, what? I mean, really? But that was, a, that was a big thing. You couldn't go to movies. But when he went out of town, he went to movies. And when asked about it, his answer was, well, nobody's going to see me that knows me. Do you see how, and those kinds of things happen in the monasteries too, is that, that when, you, when you begin to misunderstand what biblical separation is, you, you also can justify and you can twist and, and uh, things like that take place. So what would, what would Jesus' response be to those first two views? And I'm going to give you a, a third one that it's not also. But, but uh, Jesus had no problem with proximity to unbelief. By the way, this helps us understand how we can be an ambassador. He had no problem with proximity to unbelief or being seen in settings where unbelievers frequented. Um, you just go through the Gospels, but let me just uh, uh, read you couple places in Matthew. Matthew uh, chapter 9 says, and as Jesus reclined at, at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners, uh, and those were, I mean, they were, it was assumed that tax collectors in that day were, were uh, sinners, and they, that was kind of a, uh, even sometimes used as a generic term, came out and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. And then over in Matthew eleven nineteen, it says, the son of man came eating and drinking. And they said, look at him, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Because he was there. He was there with them. That's where he spent his time, in his time here on earth. And the only time he separated was 
very occasionally, and it was only for a time, and it was to go be with his father. Here's what he prayed for us, and this is in John 17, and um, this is what what most would say is the real Lord's Prayer because it was his prayer to his Father. He says this in John seventeen fourteen. I've given them your word and the world has hated them. This is his people because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask, uh, ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So that's the key. That's, that's what his response is uh, when, it, when it comes to separation. It's not remove them from this world and that will help them stay holy, but it's let them not be up part of this world, of the world. So you've heard the term, we're in the world, but not of it. And that's what we're going to be talking about in a moment, really what that means. But we do remain in this world. There is a right way to deal with unbelievers and yet remain holy before God. It's doable, Jesus is showing. One other area we need to clarify before we get to the unequally uh, yoked, and that is that Paul here is not talking about divorcing an unbelieving spouse. And you say, what? I, I didn't think he was, but there are some that have used this when they've been in a marriage and they're married to an unbeliever to say, well, it gives me a reason to get out of it. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it says this, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Now, when he says in 2 Corinthians not to be unequally yoked, it does mean that a believer should not marry an unbeliever. We're going to flesh that out in a, in a few minutes. But if two unbelievers, this was a situation in 1 Corinthians, you have, uh, it was the early church, let's say you have two believers and they're mar- unbelievers and they are, are married, and then one becomes a believer, the question would be, well, sh- should I separate? Should I divorce? The one who's an un... Because I I shouldn't be unequally yoked. And Paul says, no, no, not not in that case. We're called to peace, right? And this is actually what he says. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? In other words, bring salvation and they might become a believer. Now, that's different. I want you to hear this. That's different than evangelistic dating. It's different than evangelistic marriage. 
In other words, to justify uh, dating or marrying an unbeliever when it's so clear that we ought not to. Uh, that is not a justification. But it's also not an escape clause for getting out of a marriage. So if biblical separation is not just uh, proximity or out of sight, what is it? Well, biblical uh, separation in, here in Second Corinthians goes much deeper than just the outward. Uh, here's how Paul presents it. Uh, Biblical separation means not being ultimately identified with the things that are opposed to God. Not being ultimately, intimately identified with the things that are opposed to God. Back to uh, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, where's the idea of... uh, uh, and uh, this unequal yoke come from? Well, you can, you can see it, for instance, in, in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 22, verse 10 says, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Now, there's lots of utilitarian reasons for that. Uh, you know, the, the most obvious reason would be if you have a, a, a large stronger animal and a smaller one and you're trying to plow, you're going to have a crooked row. Okay? That makes sense. It, doesn't, it just doesn't work. You know, you have one animal or you, you have two that match at least to some degree. Those are, you know, there's lots of, as we call it, utilitarian reasons, practical reasons for that. But the spirit of that law is this that in creation God has given order and kind. And that's what we have to respect. So in this passage, Paul uses several words of identity. Uh, The first one uh, in verse 14 is partnership and fellowship. Uh, 14, the last part, for what partnership has, has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness, the idea of partnership is what do they share? What, what can really they share? Uh, fellowship is, is the word koinonia. And you may know that uh, from, you know, small groups being called K groups for koinonia. The idea is a, a, an intimate, a two-way relationship. And then verse 15, what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? The idea of portion is what harmony is there? And, and the, the obvious answer, the answer to all of these is, oh, they don't. That's right. Those, the unbeliever and the believer, those, those, are, those are opposites in what really matters here. And then verse 16, what agreement has a temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. So the the agreement there is what what union? So Paul uses contrasts to illustrate why unbelievers and believers should not be yoked together. And he he compares a believer to an unbeliever, righteousness with lawlessness, 
light with darkness, Christ with Belial, Satan. So in each of these, he's illustrating in a way that we should be able to understand, okay, what does light have to do with darkness? Well, you either have one or the other. If light comes into a room, the darkness is not there. If, if a room is dark, there is no light. And he's, he's illustrating that's the problem with being yoked together with an unbeliever. And then his ultimate illustration is Christ and Belial, Christ and Satan. What, what, do they, what kind of fellowship, what kind of union or partnership or bond would they have? And the answer is, well, of course, none. And that's his, <coughs> his illustrations in this. So, since it's not just being with unbelievers, what are ways that we are not to be yoked with unbelievers? I'm going to just give you two illustrations. And one would be uh, in terms of a, a partnership, uh, like a business partnership. And you say, well, what's, what's the big deal there? Why, why can't? And, you know, I'm, I want to be quick to say it, I'm not saying, and this wouldn't say, that an unbeliever can't be honest or moral. I, I know, you know, many unbelievers, some of them are more honest than Christians that I... And, and you know that that can be the case. So that's not the point. It goes back to the creation order and kind. So if you go into business with somebody, the, the problem is that that a believer and unbeliever are going to have a different bottom line, right? They're going to make decisions differently. We believe, as followers of Christ, that, that every decision needs to be taken before the Lord and to, to, to pray about it. And the unbeliever, that wouldn't be their view at all. So it, it heads toward difficulties, and that doesn't mean if you get two believers together that there's not going to be difficulties also. But, but this is one at the very core of who we are. That's his point. And that brings us to perhaps the most obvious application that I already mentioned, and that is a believer not being yoked together with an unbeliever. Again, we're not talking about once, once they're married. This is in terms of who will I marry. Earlier, I'm, I made uh, the, the statement that this forbids a, a believer from marrying an unbeliever. The fact is here at St. Andrews, um, we will not marry a believer to an un, unbeliever. We can't. It would be wrong. It would be against the Scripture. In the Old Testament, God constantly warned his people against intermarrying when they would go into a, a country, against marrying someone who did not believe in God. 
And of course, we in the New Testament, we would say a believer, one who believes in Christ. And why was that? Well, because they worship different things. They worship idols or themselves, and God's people worship the true and the living God. And unfortunately, the idol worshiper too often ends up having the more influence than the believer. The very core of marriage is to share the most important things together. And that starts with the Lord. If you don't share that, then you're not able to share what should be the most important. Do you know who has had the biggest influence on me spiritually in my life? My wife, Connie. Now, I couldn't say that if she wasn't a believer. She has had the the greatest influence on me spiritually. By the way, this principle goes for dating also. Which, by the way, Connie and I started dating in high school. So don't think, okay, yeah, once I get serious and, and start thinking about marriage, then I'll just... I'll just date believers. doesn't work that way always. But you say, well, what's the problem with dating? And, and you know, again, we, what we some call evangelistic dating, you know, maybe, maybe they'll come to Christ. Well, unfortunately, I've seen it way too often where what happens is they begin to date, nothing serious, And then they fall in love. And then one or the other, the believer somehow justifies and goes against this core principle in the scripture because they're in love. Our our four children, I'm thankful for this, are are married to believers. If you ask any of them, when you started dating in high school or college, uh, what was the first thing your dad asked you about the person? They will all tell you. The very first thing is, are they a believer? Are they a Christian? I would sometimes joke and, and say, are they PCA? But, but that's, that's different, you know. I didn't really mean that. But that to me was the, you know, and if, if the answer was no, which it, it wasn't, but if the answer was no, they're, they're not a believer, then from our perspective, it would have been the wrong thing to do to even go out for fun It's a dangerous step to take. Now, Paul explains our identity in verse 16, the last part. For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, 
and they shall be my people. That's our identity. The temple of the living God. And that is a holy place. Not because we're so good, but because of who dwells in us if we are trusting in Christ alone for our eternal life. And then he says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. That's the right response as believers. And that should be living lives characterized by repentance and the pursuit of holiness. That's that's the idea of separation. So back to our original question of being an ambassador without being yoked together with unbelief. Earlier, I had talked about uh, the monastic movement and, you know, the the pole sitters and, and all of that. And these, I think, were, were sincere people. And I believe in probably most cases they really were seeking God. But really, historically, the, the height of the monastic movement in terms of history, was a period that became known as the Dark Ages. And I have to wonder, how much was that time characterized by by lack of progress because of so many devoted people having been removed from the world? Remember our reading earlier about what we don't do with the light, we don't cover it up. And that's exactly what was happening. And those were dark ages because the light had been so removed from the world. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers, but know you who are believers, you who are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, you are the temple of the living God who said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Beautiful covenant promises. Let's bow together. Lord, thank you for for being clear in your word. Give us hearts open to you and to following you even and especially when it is difficult. Will you give us the strength to do that, the grace to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.